James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. That'll be the emphasis for our study today. James 3.13 begins with, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. For this wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now, the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. This is what James has to say about, and you've noticed as we go through about the topic of wisdom, I prayed a prayer for you all getting us into the new year from Ephesians 1.7. I heard this other prayer that I also wanted to share with you. This one uh, you might find interesting. The prayer goes like this. Dear Lord, so far today, I am doing all right. I have not gossiped, lost my temper, been greedy, grumpy, nasty, selfish, or self-indulgent. I have not whined, complained, cursed, or eaten any chocolate. I have charged nothing on my credit card. But Lord... In a few minutes, I'll be getting out of bed. (laughs) And then I will really need your help. I like that prayer, and, and it reminds us that life is messy, and we face decisions and relational challenges all day long. And the greatest thing that I would like for myself in the next year, the greatest thing I would like for you in the next year is wisdom. We started talking about wisdom on Wednesday night. We looked through the life of Solomon. He uh, has this blank check that God gives him, says, ask for anything you want. He could have asked for a long life. He could have asked for more money. He could have asked for the death of his enemies, but he asked for wisdom. And God was pleased with that. And then James, the same book here, the author James tells us that we can ask for wisdom the same way Solomon did, and that God will give it to us. Wisdom is a humongous need right now and always in our culture and certainly in our day. The challenge is, you see, we compartmentalize our lives. We go to church maybe because, well, our marriage needs some help. Or, well, I haven't been doing real well financially, so I need God to bless my finances. I need God to bless my marriage. Well, what God wants to do is he wants to give you wisdom of how to handle money. And then when you handle money his way, you'll find it being blessed. And he wants to give you wisdom about marriage. And when you operate in the context of marriage according to his plan and not your own, when you lean not on your own understanding, but instead acknowledge him in all your ways, all of a sudden your marriage improves. And parenting, don't parents need wisdom? We need wisdom to raise our kids in this age. And so all these things, there's no rules for them. They require wisdom because life is complex. You are complicated people. I am a complicated person. And we live together in a complicated world where we love to have rules and laws that govern every area of our life, but there's just not the ability to write a rule for everything. I sit in with people over coffee, we talk about life, and they begin to share their background, their family they came out of, the issues that they struggle with. And I thought I'd heard it all, but now I've heard something new. I've never, I've, I've, and they say, well, what do you think I should do? I'm like, I have no idea. I've never heard that before. 
I mean, that's really new. And we recognize, I mean, if we're really honest, we know that rules and laws fall short because they just can't govern wisdom. We don't need more rules. We don't need more laws. We don't need more incentives. We need more wisdom. And you know, I'm not just saying this in a vacuum. I can give you cases and example of other people, not in churches, but in the world that are saying the same thing. They look at the world around just like you look and say, we need more wisdom in the world. We need more people, virtuous people, willing to do the right thing. That's one definition for wisdom. A man named Barry Schwartz, he's a professor and a psychologist from Swarthmore University in Pennsylvania. He said, wisdom is having the moral skill to know what's right to do in a given situation. So having the moral skill to even know what's right and then the moral will to actually do it. You see, there's a difference between just knowing what's right to do and then actually doing the right thing. And what he says in his talk is that we need more people that both know what to do and then are willing to do the right thing. Life is complicated. Situations are complicated. We need wisdom. The Atlantic, not a Christian magazine, they did an article that says this, the happiness of your life depends on the quality of your thoughts. That was a quote from Marcus Aurelius, one of the Caesars, the Roman emperors, I should say. If he's right, if Marcus Aurelius is right, and the quality of your life or the happiness of your life depends on the quality of your thoughts, then the answer and the path to well-being and happiness is really easy. Avoid low-quality thoughts. And then they ask, well, is that true? Is it, can we boil it down to that simplicity? Well, the study that they cite was done by a group of men that uh, printed their findings in the Journal of Experimental Psychology. And what they found is they said what's correlated with well-being isn't reasoning ability in the abstract. In other words, just being able to think through your head what's right. But the well-being is correlated to what he calls or what they call wise reasoning or practical wisdom. Not just wisdom in your head, what you think you know and what you feel is right, but actually living wisely on a day-to-day, moment-by-moment, relationship-to-relationship basis. Wise reasoning, reasoning that is pragmatic, helping us to navigate important challenges in social life. Let me give you one other quote. This is a different article. Article begins like this. It's possible that as a society, we have lost our access to wisdom. Sure, we have a lot of smart people among us. There are even a few wise ones scattered here and there. But on the whole, we seem like a people who have been seduced by foolishness and folly. Our collective lack of wisdom is going to be more and more of a problem. In fact, the lack of wisdom is more of a threat to us than outright evil. Hey, can he really say that? I mean, how can he say that? Well, he's not alone in saying that. Do you know who else said the same thing? A man who was a Christian leader during the times of the Holocaust, the Third Reich, Nazi Germany, his name was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Have you heard of Dietrich Bonhoeffer? He was killed in a concentration camp, hung there for being part of a plot to assassinate Hitler and for his Christian and outspoken views about what was wrong with the Nazis. Bonhoeffer, who many of us know of as a Christian leader, he wrote this, stupidity is more dangerous enemy of the good than evil is. Against evil, one can protest. It can be exposed and if necessary, stopped with force. Evil always carries the seed of its own destruction because it at least leaves people with a feeling of uneasiness. 
But he said, against stupidity, we are defenseless. He was reflecting on a segment of the population at his time whose lack of wisdom made them highly susceptible to Nazi propaganda. They were foolish, and you cannot reason with a fool. Facts that contradict one's own prejudice, he wrote, Dietrich Bonhoeffer did, need only to be disbelieved, and when facts are unavoidable, they can simply be swept aside as meaningless, isolated cases. That's foolish reasoning. The author goes on to say, we are all invited to learn wisdom or not, to embrace the sometimes painful and awkward journey toward understanding or not, to change or to retrench and double down on the self-deceived notion that we have things all figured out, but only fools think they know it all. The wise are truly convinced that the only thing they really know is that they do not know much of anything. So they might just as well marshal all the strength they can muster in order to change and grow and learn and progress toward wisdom. So if we can agree that wisdom is necessary, I think biblically we can even say the same thing. Proverbs tells us that very thing. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 7 says, Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom. That's our wish. That's my prayer for you for 2018, that you would get wisdom more and more and more of it, that you would be and be living in and doing exactly what Proverbs 4, 7 says. It says wisdom is the principal thing. If you ask the average person what they would say is the most important thing, what's the principal thing in life? Well, maybe it would be to have a successful job or to have enough money to be happy if such an amount of money exists, which it doesn't. Or maybe to be powerful or whatever someone might say is the principal thing. What good are any of those things, listen, without wisdom? If you are not wise and you get lots of money, it destroys you and the people around you. So where does wisdom come from? So if we have to get this and we know we need it, where do we turn? Well, Proverbs 1.7 says, fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But then Proverbs 9.10 says, fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So wait a second, is that a contradiction in the Bible? Is fear of the Lord the beginning of wisdom or knowledge? And you know the answer to that question. The answer is yes. Fear of the Lord or taking God and his word seriously is the beginning of understanding, of knowledge, to know some things, to learn. And the more you know, the better you can make decisions. That makes you more wise. So fear of the Lord, taking God seriously, is the beginning of both knowledge and wisdom. And now we come to the book of James. If you've ever read the book of James, James, the half-brother of Jesus, uh, growing up with wisdom incarnate in his house, that was probably a real hassle, wasn't it? Why can't you be wise like your brother? Man, what a heavy load that would be. If you've ever read the book of James, you know James was a, a church leader, and James was a guy who I can't wait to meet him someday in the heavenly places because I admire his straightforward approach. This is a man of action and not of words. James is the one who writes, hey, let's not just be hearers of the word, let's be doers of the word. This is the man who writes, yes, we're saved by God's grace through our faith, but that faith has actions attached to it. The same faith that saves you also changes the way you live. And so he talks about faith in works and that works follow faith. 
So this is a guy that's, he's a rubber meets the road kind of guy. And he just finishes talking to, in chapter three, people that have said, well, I think I should be a teacher in the church. And he says, now, wait a second. Let not many of you become teachers because you're held to a higher accountability. You're going to use a lot of words. You're going to be in a place of public service and people are going to hold you to a higher standard. They're going to expect you to actually live what you preach. And the problem is our tongue, what we say, can get us in a lot of trouble. And so the beginning of chapter three, he outlines the challenges with just getting ourselves in trouble by the things we say. Now, I'm not talking about any of you guys in here. I know you've never done that. But some people do. We recognize the power of the tongue. And so it's on the heels of that, he says, verse 13, who is wise and understanding among you? So it's kind of a rhetorical question. He's saying, okay, let's talk about, there are people that no doubt were claiming to be wise. They were professing to be wise. They were telling others how wise they were. It was in the chat rooms, on the Facebook feeds, in the social media areas. They were more than happy to put on there what other people should do. They were no doubt, like many people today, experts in what other people should do with their lives. And we see this today. This is social media fosters this opportunity. It's easy to sit back and do nothing and then just talk about what the people who are doing something should be doing and feel wise. But James will not be that easily fooled. James says, who's wise and understanding among you? It's not the person who says that they are and who tells other people what to do with their lives. Look at what the next part of that verse says. He says, let him show by good conduct, that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. It doesn't say, let him show by offering advice to everybody else around that he's wise. It says, let him show by his own behavior. By the way, if you're into the Greek language, the word let him show, the word show is in a Greek verb tense that means start showing. If you're busy talking about wisdom and telling other people what to do, then start showing how wisdom affects your own life. One of the things I appreciate about uh, God and his word is there's a demonstration of things in our lives. It's a demonstration of the things that we believe. They lead to how we live. And so when it comes to leadership in the church, Timothy had to deal with this. And Paul gives Timothy advice on church leadership. There's a lot of people that want to be in leadership. And he says to the men that feel called and are being called to leadership, he says, let them show at home their shepherding capacity in the way that they deal with their own family. And then if they're dealing well with their family, then maybe they really are called to be leaders in the church. But see, if someone says, well, I'm called to be a leader in the church and their family is a mess and there's all kinds of drama and all kinds of issues, then, well, maybe you're not called to be here at leadership in the church because there's something that happens on this small level in the family that, that takes the same stuff that it takes to lead in this other area. So there's a demonstration. That's what I'm trying to say. There's a demonstration. And James says, when it comes to wisdom, he says, let him show by good conduct the way he lives or she lives, that the things that they do, the works that they do, not just what they do, but how they're done. These works are done in meekness of wisdom. See, that's the funny thing about wisdom is a person that's wise never calls attention to themselves because that's foolish. And that's what he says right here. The demonstration will be that if you're one that has to always be telling people that you're wise, 
and that you know what you're talking about, if you're the one that has the log in your own eye and you're always pointing out the speck in others, the reality is you're not wise or you wouldn't have to tell people. Wise people don't have to tell people that they're wise. They just live. It's just like the sun. The sun just shines. It never has to call attention to itself. So James goes on. He says, but if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast against and lie against the truth. So the truth will always be shown. A wise person will demonstrate it in their life. If you have envy and self-seeking, I'll get to those in a minute. If these are the things that are in your hearts, that's where the problem is. Problem isn't with other people. The problem is in your heart, he says. I told you, James is a heavy hitter. This is a day to wear your steel-toed shoes to church. If envy and self-seeking are in your hearts, then don't boast and lie against the truth. The truth is you're not wise. And he says it shows by the way you live, by the relationships that you have and how you deal with those. Now, envy and self-seeking go together. And let me help you with the understanding of these. Self-seeking is a word that has come to mean sort of uh, I do what I do to get what I want. That's my motive, is me. I'm going to do it not because it's virtuous, not because it's righteous, not because it's the good thing to do. I used to tell my son, real men don't do what they want, they do what they must. So self-seeking is I do what I want for what I get out of it. Wisdom is I do what has to be done. So the word progressed, it came to that from a place where it meant political self-promoting. So the person who was self-seeking was seeking to promote themselves above other people. And how many of you have lived long enough to know that that causes division? When any time that someone is self-promoting, it involves putting other people down. So self-promoting involves putting myself forward. I found this to be true. This is how this looks in church. Remember, James is not writing to the world. He's writing to the church. There's a lot of God's people. We come in, we study the Bible, but when it comes time to making decisions, we don't apply the wisdom of God's word to our everyday lives. This is epidemic in the church. And so James is writing because people are the same then as they are now. So James says to them, if envy and self-seeking are in your hearts, self-seeking in the church, how does it look? Brace yourselves. It looks like denominationalism. Wisdom, the more wise a person is, the less denominationally minded they are. Because what is denominationalism? Denominationalism was, well, my denomination is better than your denomination. Our denomination has it right. Your denomination has it wrong. That's denominationalism. The wiser a person is, the more mature they become, the less denominational they become. The less focus there is on my group of people, the more focus there is on the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, when we talk about the Lord rather than my denomination, then everybody unifies around him. Whether you're Catholic, Methodist, Baptist, Calvary Chapel, whatever, Who cares about those things? Those things are man-made. And self-seeking and self-promotion advance myself by attaching myself to a group or a thing that seems to be better than that other thing. And that's why envy is attached. Envy, many of you kind of understand, it's oftentimes connected to jealousy, but they're different. Jealousy is, I want what you have. Envy is, I don't want you to have what you have. Now, I was just reading this book not too long ago. This is called The Call by Oz Guinness. And I read a chapter that he wrote that uh, had to deal with envy. And I thought, I can't say it any better than this. So I'm going to read to you a couple of excerpts. 
He says, envy is not simply aspiration or ambition. Those themes, after all, are constructive and central to a calling. Rather, envy, in Thomas Aquinas' definition, is sorrow at another's good. Envy enters when, seeing someone else's happiness or success, we feel ourselves called into question. Then, out of the hurt of our wounded self-esteem, we seek to bring the other person down to our level by word or deed. They belittle us by their success we feel. We should bring them down to their deserved level. Envy helps us feel. Full-blown envy, in short, is dejection plus disparagement plus destruction. He goes on to say, like pride, envy by its very nature is comparative and competitive. Or more precisely, pride is competitive. Hang with me. Pride is competitive and envy is the result of pride wounded in competition. Finally, as we talk about comparisons, he says, just let such comparisons, you comparing yourself to other people, let such comparisons mix with your less worthy desires and envy will rear its head again. An envy that increases, not lessens with age. An envy that may be petty, but will be all-consuming. An envy that focuses on the most competitive and therefore closest to your own gifts and calling. That's where you tend to compare yourself to someone who's doing the thing that you want to do well. And they're succeeding, and maybe you're perceiving yourself to be failing, and that's why envy brews, because you want what they have, you can't have it, then you have to run them down because they shouldn't have it either. Do you see what happens when this works out in church? What the church down the road is doing or not doing, and we elevate ourselves. Look, we have to work really hard at analyzing and thinking through our own thoughts and behaviors going, let me just give you an example just in my own life, because I know I tend toward these things. Am I alone? We tend toward comparisons. We tend toward competitiveness, and those things can have attached to them this wicked fruit of envy and self-promotion. So you've ever gotten one of our little Calvary Chapel handbooks that we hand out? We worked really hard on the introductory paragraph. If you've not read it, take a minute to read it because we didn't want to be promoting Calvary Chapel and saying things that build us up as if all other churches have really blown it and we're the only church that really has it right. I'm just talking from practical experience. I'm just talking from my heart. I think this is one of the real failings in the competitive church life that we lead is we're vying for memberships and vying to fill seats. And so we run that church down so we can promote ourselves like we're the only church that's got it right. And may you never see that around here. And if you ever hear me doing that, say, ah, Steve, James chapter three. So envy and self-seeking are attached because in promoting myself, that's what I want, but other people are being promoted and then I get jealous and envious of them So you see how these things go together. I think you understand. But if those things are existing, he says, verse 15, this wisdom, political wisdom, where we run the other candidate down, that wisdom is not from above. That's not godly wisdom. Well, where does it come from? Notice there's two sources for wisdom. You thought there was only one source. You thought God was the only source of wisdom. Hey, wait a second. There's a whole nother source of wisdom. They consider it wise. It's not godly wisdom but it's the wisdom of the world nonetheless. That's what he says here. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, and demonic. Whoa, that's a heavy load. He he calls it demonic, devilish, evil-spirited, and sensual. 
we take sensual oftentimes in a sexual frame of reference, but it's the Greek word where we get psychology from. And it really means the natural man, natural. So this wisdom is natural. We're looking for supernatural wisdom. Lean not on your own understanding. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. So this wisdom is natural. Listen, I'm going to step on some toes here. Many of you been to, go to counseling. You go to psychologists and psychiatrists. And here's what I want to tell you. This is the truth from the Bible. And if it offends you, I'm sorry. But actually, I'm not sorry because it's true that the least in the kingdom of God who has a Bible and knows how to find wisdom from God through knowing how to make their way through, knowing where certain chapters are, knowing where certain verses are, the least in the kingdom of God is more qualified with a Bible to give you advice than the greatest PhD psychologist without a Bible. And that is truth. You go to God for wisdom. Man can only give you natural wisdom, which means wisdom that comes from my human nature, which oftentimes gets me in trouble. That's why I needed Jesus in the first place. I was born into sin. I made stupid decisions, tried to ruin my life. Jesus had to save me. It's sensual, it's earthly, it's demonic. And this is verse 16 is not telling us anything we don't already know. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. There's drama, there's division, there's arguing, there's party spiriting. There's, it's just a mess. If you live long enough to experience that where envy and self-seeking exist, there's a whole bunch of confusion. There's a whole bunch of drama. When people use wisdom, Jesus kind of wisdom, put others first, seek others' well-being and not just your own. Then we find peacefulness happening. We find love blossoming. We find grace being enjoyed. Where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing, or just in case James missed something, a bunch of other stuff is there too. But verse 17 says, the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. So he gives a great little list because you've got thousands of decisions to make. You've got parenting decisions. You've got marriage decisions. You've got you know, church-related decisions. You've got spiritual decisions. You've got work-related decisions. You've got family-related decisions. You've got financial decisions. You've got all kinds of decisions to make. And you have to be able to ask yourself, well, how do I know? Am I making a good decision? Am I making a wise decision? Well, here's a grid. Wisdom from above is first pure. First pure. First and foremost pure. That means to be morally clean. You can't make an immoral decision and expect it to be wise. You can't say, well, the end justifies the means, meaning I, maybe I got to do some, an immoral thing here, but it's going to bring about a good result. That's not wise. Wisdom never compromises on purity and truth. Wisdom from above is first pure, and then it's peaceable. Think about the parable Jesus told of the wise and foolish builders, because wise people don't compromise on purity by going with culture or cultural trends or whatever the world might be saying is important at this time, or even the church is full of trends and things come and things go. Wise people hold on and dig in with truth. The wise and the foolish builder. Remember the one guy, he builds his house where? On the rock. And the other guy, he builds his house on the sand. Jesus had just preached a sermon. And then he's like, okay, what are you going to do with this? The wise people here, they're going to listen to what I said and they're going to do it. That wisdom involves doing. 
the foolish people here are going to hear what I said and they're going to ignore it. And they're going to be like the guy that builds his house on the sand. What do we know about sand? You're going to build your house on the beach? How long is it going to last? Go down to Palmyra, you look at the Rivanna River. It twists and turns, right? It's crooked. Why is a river crooked? Because it follows the path of least resistance. Wise people do what's right. They do what they must and not what they want. It's first pure, and then it's peaceable. You see, sometimes in our world, I think we got that backwards. We want wisdom from above to be first peaceable. Peace at all costs, and then pure. Doesn't work that way. We don't compromise truth to bring peace. Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. So there's a time when even Jesus himself causes division. So we're not saying that wisdom is always peaceable. It's first pure, and then it does things that make for peace. Think about your own relationships. Think about your own life. How's your track record for relationships? How many friendships do you have? Any? I meet more and more people that have no friendships. They have a string of broken relationships, probably due to lack of wisdom and lack of doing what makes for peace between people. Wisdom says, hey, I want to build a bridge to make peace with you. That's wise. Foolishness just keeps cutting off relationship after relationship and blaming other people. Wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable. I like this one, gentle. William Barclay said this is almost undefinable in our language. Gentle kind of gets there, but it really kind of goes farther to mean a man who knows when it is wrong to apply the letter of the law. Stick around for Romans 7. We're going to talk about this more. The man or woman who knows when it's wrong to apply the letter of the law. Let me give you an example. This is given by a guy named Barry Schwartz. I mentioned him earlier. He talks about an example in the world of a guy who takes his son to a baseball game. They go out to the game together. It's time to get refreshments. They go up to the refreshment stand at the stadium. He wants to get his kid something he can have to drink. Wants lemonade. Well, the only lemonade they had is this stuff called Mike's Hard Lemonade. Well, he didn't know what that was. So he gets his son a lemonade and off they go back to their seats. Well, the The stadium security guard sees this five-year-old given a Mike's Hard Lemonade by his father, and he calls the medical team. The medical team comes a-running. They call the ambulance. Pretty soon, the kid and the father being carted off to the hospital in an ambulance. Well, they get to the hospital in the emergency room. They do the test for blood alcohol level, and they find that he has no blood alcohol level whatsoever. They're ready to release him home, but Child Protective Services gets involved. And now, no, 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 they can't let him go home They have to put him in foster care for three days. So the child goes into foster care for three days. At the end of that three days, they're ready to bring him home. But again, the protocol says that the kid can only come home if the father leaves the house. So finally, two weeks later, they get this all sorted out. The family's reunited. And the challenge, as Barry Schwartz brings it up, is that all along the way, every person involved says, we really didn't want to do it, but we had to. We had to follow protocol. You see, Aristotle watched his craftsmen. He watched them building columns for the great structures of ancient Greece. And he watched as they had these stiff rulers, and they tried to measure out a round column. And they had to come up with a creative solution because you can't measure a round column with a stiff, straight rule. And what they did is they invented what we now know as the tape measure. They invented a flexible rule, a rule that could be bent. And he realized at that moment that what this word is saying here, gentleness is knowing 
when the situation calls for the rules to be bent. It's understanding the spirit of the law and not just sticking to the letter of the law. Jesus knew this, right? They bring him a woman caught in adultery. The law says she should be stoned to death. Jesus applies wisdom in the situation, seeing her heart, seeing her embarrassment, seeing her being shamed. And after he scribbles in the sand and all the accusers run off, he says, where are your accusers? Who's going to throw the stone? Well, no one's left. And he said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. He understands wisdom. I like that word gentleness, wisdom. Willing to yield. Here's a good one for some of you. Some of you dig in in the midst of a conflict, in the midst of a discrepancy. You ain't giving in for nothing. Doesn't matter if you're wrong. You ever found yourself doing that? You're like, I know I'm wrong, but I can't give in. A willingness to yield is not a weakness. Listen, in marriage, you're called to be yielded one to another. Yea, let both of you, all of us, in the church, Peter says, that all of us be yielded or submissive to one another. So there comes a time in life when wisdom says, I know when to yield and I know when I can't yield. As a pastor, I'm never yielding on truth. I'm never yielding on the steady teaching, the steady working through the word of God. But there's other things you go, you know, style of music. We can yield on some things. We, you know, isn't it great to see some young guys and girls up here leading music and playing? So maybe we can yield and go, okay, you know, maybe it can be a little bit of this and a little bit of that. There's a wisdom and a willingness to yield in your life. That last argument you had at home probably could have been solved if one of you was willing to yield to the other. That's wisdom, not weakness. It's wisdom. Full of mercy and good fruits. We could talk about those for a long time, but let's press on without partiality. You can't have wisdom if you're going to play favorites. And I like this one without hypocrisy, without hypocrisy. Hypocrisy, many of you know, is play acting. Hypocrisy is playing a role. Ancient Greek actors were called hypocrites. They were just that. They were actors. They had a big mask on that would show whether there was a frowny face or a smiley face. That was acting. So wisdom does not involve acting, being one thing here and another thing at home. Now, here's a clarification I want to make, and then we'll bring this to a close. When it comes to wisdom and making wise decisions, practical reasoning, it has nothing to do with how you feel. Now, hear me out. Feelings are from God. Emotions are God-given. They're important and they're to be acknowledged, not hidden, not to be embarrassed about. They are what they are. You feel angry. Yeah, I feel angry. I feel hurt. That's okay. You can say that. So once you've said it, the question that wisdom asks is, okay, so you feel hurt. Now what are we going to do? That's the question wisdom asks. And that's the question wisdom answers. What are we going to do? See, feelings will get you in trouble because feelings, are they shifting sand or are they solid rock? Come on, church. Feelings are shifting sand. They change. You sleep on it. You know, you think about the email you just wrote. You realize tomorrow you feel different. What if you act on it at the time? You do some unwise things. Anybody done something unwise in the moment of a heated anger or feeling a certain way? And you, oh man, that was dumb. But here's the challenge is some of you feel hypocritical if you don't honor the way you feel at the given time. You feel, well, if I feel angry and I don't act on it, then I'm a hypocrite. No, 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 no. Then you're wise. If you feel angry and because of a process of reasoning it through in your mind, choose not to act on the anger, even though you've acknowledged that you feel it, that makes you really wise. That makes you my hero. 
Hypocrite is someone who acts one way in a certain situation and then acts a whole different way somewhere else. There's an inconsistency because everything they're doing is just to be seen by people. That's a hypocrite. And finally, this is the kicker line. William Barclay says every Christian should have this underlined in their Bible. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Now pay careful attention. Hang with me. We're almost done. Fruit is a result. Fruit is what grows, right? You go out to the yard, you see a fruit tree, it's got apples on it. The fruit is what has grown from the tree. The tree started as what? See, come on, biology majors. Started as a seed. You plant the seed, the seed grows into a tree, and the tree grows then fruit. And that's what James is saying. Now, the fruit of righteousness, the fruit of correct living, correct thinking, wise living, that fruit is first planted in the soil of peace by people who make peace with each other in relationships. Now, William Barclay said, finally, James says something which every Christian church and every Christian group should have written on his heart. The Revised Standard Version translates this verse, the harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. James is saying that we are all trying to reap the harvest which a good life brings. But the seeds which bring the rich harvest can never, listen, can never flourish in any atmosphere other than one of right relationship between man and man. And the only people who can sow these seeds and reap the reward are those whose life work it has been to produce such right relationships. That is to say, nothing good can ever grow in an atmosphere where men are at variance with one another. A group where there is bitterness and strife is a barren soil in which the seeds of righteousness can never grow and out of which no reward can ever come. The man who disturbs personal relationships and is responsible for strife and bitterness has cut himself off from the reward which God gives to those who live his life. I don't know what you're praying for in 2018. You can pray for a lot of stuff, but can I encourage you, church? Can we pray for wisdom together? Not just head knowledge, but can we pray to live wisely? Can we pray that we would grow closer to Jesus and make better decisions that lead to more peace in our church, peace in our lives, peace in our community? And again, let me say, not peace at the expense of truth or purity, but a peace that comes from and follows purity. 